0: I came across a content creator on Spotify once searching for commentary on Anita Baker's phenomenal album compositions. It turned out to be a brief comedic attempt to contextualize Baker's work and our personal everyday lives. Going back to, according to this creator, when your mama would put on her records on Saturday afternoons while cleaning the home, being the overseer to make sure you were pulling your weight. I very much wanted to hear meaningful discourse about R&B music that I didn't hear enough about. Because to me, Rhythm and Blues plays a heavy role in how we connect with our own histories. R&B has helped me understand my inner self and the broader Black culture that shares in the struggle, faith, and joy of a complex existence.
1: R&B music has brought profound joy into my life, starting with my earliest memories as a child, in the backseat of my parents' car, taking long road trips where my dad played us his R&B mixtapes. Everything from Motown to Aretha Franklin to James Brown to Betty Swan to the Osley Brothers to the Spinners to the Gap Band to the OJs played on those mixtapes. I remember those car rides and those mixtapes more than the actual places we visited sometimes. I learned so much from my parents listening to this music. The joy in their voices as they connected songs with stories and memories, I soaked it all in. Every chorus, every hook, every melody and shout, These soulful singers felt like some of my earliest teachers, shaping my understanding of the world. Love and romance, joy and pain, and everything in between. R&B music is the first music I've ever loved. It will always be home to me.
0: I'm writer and professor Ashley Blackwell.
1: I'm screenwriter and music enthusiast Robin Shanae.
0: And this is Rhythm and Schooled.
1: Breaking down 90s R&B one year at a time. Episode zero, the introlude.
0: We felt this prologue is necessary in order to establish how we get to those musically majestic times called the 90s. But we can't possibly cover every pocket of such a layered, untamed music genre. R&B is incredibly broad, intertwined with the history of Black people in America and more. Here, we'll lay some foundations for understanding and provide a wealthy crash course of this corner of music history. Additionally, we'll mainly be focusing on songs and artists that spark our own interests and memories. We start our journey with the blues, which is a music Black Americans are often associated with creating and establishing as a distinctive art form originating in the United States. The blues combined elements of the English Ballad, which is a narrative song, story, and or poem, The call and response practices of the African work song, an activity of distraction commonly from harsh working conditions, and the rhythms of ring shouts, a practice that originated in Central and West Africa that encompasses dancing counterclockwise, so clapping of the hands and patting feet, and singing mainly to the ancestors and or god or gods. In the Americas, enslaved Africans practiced ring shouts primarily for religious purposes, blending motherland traditions passed down with newer Christian fundamentals. One person establishes the call and response orders, and another would rhythmically beat the floor with wood or a broom to provide the rhythm. Call and response is pretty self-explanatory. Many of us have heard the phrase. A crowd responds to an MC's demands, which are often exclamations, repetitive phrases, or improvisations. With all of these elements becoming common practice by the end of the 1800s, the blues was a cultural pastime. This is where it's been said that banjos, harmonicas, and pianos start to make its way into the music. Within the next two decades, Black Americans began to produce some of their first music recordings. And this is where perhaps rhythm and blues is formed when blues and jazz came together into an intricate musical style. Black American artist Perry Bradford is known as a man responsible for the first recording of a blues song sung by a Black artist. He labored for weeks to convince record executives at the OK Company, which is spelled O-K-E-H, to record Mamie Smith, the first Black female blues performer, to record her vocals on a track. On August 10, 1920, Crazy Blues, a Bradford and Smith collabo, was created with a small jazz band who called themselves the Jazz Hounds. Here was the spark of a new music craze that would have a massive impact on the history of American music as we know it. Music business heads wanted to duplicate the crazy blues formula. A female singer plus the backing of a band or orchestra equaling a Bradford-style vision. Bradford, may be the first babyface Brian Alexander Morgan or Missy Elliott, beginning the lineage of outstanding producers we'll talk more about in the episodes to come. And Mamie Smith set a stage for the more well-known artists like Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith, and we'll be here forever if I even attempt to complete a full list. Even though the demand for this taste of the blues was high, the United States was still a racially segregated place, even down to the categorization of record catalogs, the pre-Tower Records or Sam Goody. So race records became the term in the 1920s, classified by white industry executive Ralph Peer to demarcate all, yes, all Black artists in the catalog. So these artists were unsurprisingly resentful of this classification, only for it to morph into the term rhythm and blues by around 1948 by Billboard, which again was an umbrella term that all Black artists were placed under. Regardless of the rigid label with vast artistic expression, from the 1920s through the early 1950s, R&B as a music genre skyrocketed into popularity in America and was broadcasted on radio nationwide. What stands out to you when thinking about the emphasis of R&B?
1: You know, the fact that the foundation of this music hinges on the African work song or spirituals and the blues, the pain we were singing out of because of the conditions we faced. Some people tend to forget the B stands for blues and r and And I think what also stands out always would be call and response. I have always find that fascinating, the way Black people communicate with one another, how we affirm each other, how we've used it in the Black church, in our communities and conversations, as well as in music and all aspects of our social lives.
0: Oh, absolutely. Looking into this information and the historical trajectory was really fun and eye-opening because you're right, like the Black church and other social spaces, I've seen the elements of R&B practice. So getting a taste of its origin was a great exercise. And it's so majestic to me how much call and response has been passed down through generations and generations and how we use it even today. And even thinking about R&B, really interested in the skyrocketing and the popularity. And I'm curious about what exactly was happening to make this fact a reality.
1: Well, in the late 1940s, Prominent record producer Jerry Wexler is credited with coining the term rhythm and blues as a marketing tool, despite the phrase being used since the early 40s when it replaced the term race records, as you'd mentioned. Soon, Rhythm & Blues was popularized as a blanket labeling for all records made by Black musicians. Early originators of the Rhythm & Blues sound are artists like Louis Jordan, Big Joe Turner, Laverne Baker, and Percy Mayfield. And specifically, Louis Jordan is credited with making one of the first Rhythm & Blues songs. Also important to name Fats Domino, and Little Richard, Bo Diddley, Ruth Brown as part of these origins, and doo-wop groups like the Orioles and the Ravens as being early innovators. By the early to mid-1950s, rhythm and blues started to become even more popularized as a genre, becoming a major influence on rock and roll during this time, too. According to music scholar Lawrence N. Redd, the terms R&B and rock and roll were used interchangeably until about 1957. But did you know... It was recording artist Ray Charles, who was often most credited with pioneering the soul music sound during the 1950s, combining blues, jazz, rhythm and blues with gospel stylings. The song is called What I'd Say, and it changed everything. It was an improvised song Ray Charles made up on the spot with the Ray Letts while on tour in 1959. Radio was initially hesitant to play it because the lyrics were more sexually suggestive than what they were used to at the time. Journalist Ian McCann summarizes that prior to this song, 50s R&B singers drew upon their church upbringing when performing, but they had yet to configure how a gospel-infused style could make a pop hit. See, the spiritual element was often downplayed. What I say changed all that. The gospel stylings merged with the secular lyricism, and it birthed soul. This sound echoed and reverberated through all of the R&B and soul music that came after it. Pioneers such as Sam Cooke, Jackie Wilson, James Brown, and Aretha Franklin, and others popularized, revolutionized, and transformed this soulful sound well into the 1960s.
0: I feel this is such a complicated line of discourse because it seems historically... If creators aren't doing the naming, the naming takes on the connotations of the namer, and the essence of what the genre is, is stripped, and then perhaps artists are mislabeled, and credit is not given to the actual creators. So that's what really stands out to me about this particular time period. Like all of the folks you mentioned are pioneers and creators of the genre. They all brought something a little different and added to the pot to enrich what it is. But you've articulated this so much better during some of our earlier conversations that we've had even prior to this podcast.
1: Yeah, I mean, despite what's been written down and passed down, I think it's really difficult to draw this like very linear line as to who invented soul or who transformed it, even who really popularized it. I do believe Ray Charles took the genre to another level with how he created this gospel-fied R&B. Like He's basically singing about sex, but it sounds churchy, which was super controversial during this time. (laughs) And to your point, so many hands were stirring in that pot and adding more dimensions to the genre and expanding upon it and constantly pushing it forward. I'm curious, who are you most familiar with during this era?
0: So the main artist I grew up listening to because my mother is is James Brown and, Mm. you know, during the 90s when we were like buying up CDs like Hot Cakes you know she bought the <laughs> Greatest Hits album and so I started listening to that it was hers but I just wanted I wanted to listen to it more myself on my per, on my own personal time so when I was a teenager I loved songs like Please 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 Hot Pants The Payback Papa Don't Take No Mess and I know these uh, songs kind of transcend the decades and go throughout but um, James Brown is, is one of those pioneers and one of those kind of godfathers in a sense and but there were so many more like artists over the years as I started to like learn about more about this music
1: I grew up listening to James Brown as well because my father's a big fan Um, I also grew up loving Sam Cook as well because of my dad and Ray Charles and my mom is a really big fan of Ray Charles she just loves his voice I remember um, both of my grandfathers mentioning folks like Lloyd Price and Fats Domino and Ruth Brown there were so many there at the beginning I adore little Richard and I wanted to mention some doo-wop groups like Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers and the Drifters who contributed to the sound of early R&B. And they just made some really great, enduring music. Oh, I could be here all day talking about those. These are
0: real legacies with influence on how we think about the music, the business, and even the world. And this seems to be just the beginning.
1: Yeah, because, you know, you can't really discuss, uh, you can't really have a discussion about R&B's evolution in history without putting some respect on the name Aretha Franklin, the Queen of Soul herself, who, along with the likes of Ray Charles, Sam Cooke, and James Brown, pioneered this gospel-fused R&B and pushed it into the mainstream with major hits like Respect, Think, Chain of Fools, to name a few. No one sounded like Aretha. Her impact is enormous and undeniable. She took the genre to new heights. Her legacy and her career is one of the greatest things to come out of Detroit, Michigan. And while we're talking about Detroit, one of the other greatest things to happen to R&B music also came out of Detroit. I'm saying by the early 60s, another major shift in R&B was happening. And this shift started with a record label called Motown. The Detroit-based label headed by Barry Gordy commercialized and universalized the sound of R&B, changing and transforming not just R&B, but pop music as we know it. Again, journalist Ian McCann states, quote, Motown broke the color barrier and found fans of every race and creed, But it was not just down to brilliant music. The company went out of its way to build an audience wider than any Black label had ever found, yet achieved this while retaining all these soulful qualities, end quote. The songs were catchy and harmonic with very memorable hooks and melodies. During a time of civil unrest in America, Motown was seen as a unifier and a beacon of hope. Motown's crossover success was demonstrated in numerous ways, such as establishing a publishing house, reaching international audiences, and expanding into film and television. The golden age of Motown was unprecedented. Never had Black R&B artists crossed over to the pop charts at this magnitude. Responsible for this crossover success was not only Gordy's obsession with hit-making, but also having an incredible collection of songwriters such as Smokey Robinson, Holland Dozier Holland, and Norman Whitfield. And we can't forget the brilliant backing band, the Funk Brothers, who helped shape the unique sound of artists that they were playing for. Many of the songs of Motown are omnipresent in our daily lives. They are in TV shows and movies to this day. It almost feels like you were born knowing these songs. I can't tell you the first time I heard My Girl by The Temptations or Please Mr. Postman by The Marvelettes, but I know every word, and I'm sure you do too. Motown's multi-generational reach is unlike anything we've ever seen musically from any other label. Some of the biggest artists in the world came from Motown. Michael Jackson, Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, Diana Ross, and Rick James, to name a few. And, you know, I recently watched a romantic comedy called Set It Up that came out a few years ago. And get this, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, Nowhere to Run, was the opening song. (laughs) So, Ashley, tell me what are some of your favorite Motown songs?
0: I mean, how many? Again, we'll be here all day.
1: (laughs) There are too many.
0: There are way too many favorites to name. I'm mad I have to pick any. But off the top of my head, some of the first Motown songs I remember hearing is Martha and the Vandellas Dancing in the Street, uh, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, Tears of a Clown. Those are the first two I remember. But of course, along the way came the plethora of other Marvin Gaye, The Jackson Five. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know where to start because it's, it's, Motown so ubiquitous.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I have a lot of favorites, too. I mean, off the top of my head, I can say Smokey Robinson, The Miracles, Ooh, Baby, Baby, You Really <laughs> Got a Hold on Me. I mean, these songs remind you why Bob Dylan actually calls Smokey Robinson America's greatest living poet. Mm-hmm. I love Don't Mess With Bill by The Marvelettes. You Keep Me Hanging On by The Supremes. All of what Marvin Gaye did with Motown. And you can't forget Stevie Wonder and those incredible right. albums, right? Like, who his entire Catalog. Yeah. And then you have The Temptation, The Four Tops. There's just so many hits. So yeah, hard for me to name favorites too.
0: I think I'm most impressed by the fact that Gordy succeeded in making Motown timeless. Like that's, I mean, he had a vision and and boom.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he executed that vision 10 times, a million times over, right? It's important to note Motown is an actual label and not just a sound or an era. I notice folks may not realize this because of how we speak of Motown and how the tremendous amount of music that came out of the label, but Motown wasn't the only label making R&B at the time. Another defining label was Stax Records, which was created in 1957 by white siblings Jim Stewart and Estelle Axton. Although white-owned, Stax was extremely influential in creating Southern soul and Memphis soul. While Motown created a more polished approach to R&B and soul, Stax was grittier and leaned into its blues, country, and gospel influences. The usage of horns and bass gave Stax its distinctive style. While Motown ran like a well-oiled machine or assembly line in the early days, Sax was more free-flowingly creative and loose when it came to making records. Stacks helmed legends of souls such as Sam and Dave, Otis Redding, Carla Thomas, Eddie Floyd, Isaac Hayes, the Soul Children, and the Staple Singers, to name a few. Never quite reaching Motown's popularity and success, but still a major driving force in the shift in R&B during the 60s and 70s. It remains one of the most prominent labels, and its impact cannot be understated. The Staples Singers are faves. Mavis Staples, for me, like I think she's one of the most gifted singers of soul. I'll Take You There has been sampled a lot, so I'm sure people know that one for sure. I also really love their songs like Respect Yourself, and If You're Ready, Come Go With Me. Sam and Dave's When Something Is Wrong With My Baby is another big favorite of mine. I think the Soul Children are really underrated. I I advise anyone to check out the Soul Children if you really love soul music. The Sweeter He Is is one of their most incredible songs. And I have to mention Otis Redding. He's been a favorite of mine for years. Sitting on the Dock of the Bay may be the most popular of his songs, but Try A Little Tenderness is probably my favorite. And you know, what Stax as a label was doing, you know, they were expanding on this very specific yet expanding soul sound.
0: Bill Gavin wrote that soul was or is, quote, a deeply felt expression of a mature emotion as opposed to a typical teenage preoccupation with first love and its attendant frustrations, end quote. So from the grit of gospel and the roots of Southern rural living towards the liberation of Black people, you have soul music, a clash of crafted instrumentation, improvisation, cultural and visual performativity, smooth vocal techniques, and the progression of harmonic crescendos. The meat of the songs, smothered in Black vernacular consciousness and spiritual inspiration. These are the components that arrived on the soul tracks that these R&B singers were laying. In the 1970s, soul was what the Black listening audience wanted and gained a presence in the national imagination by the end of the decade. But how does this happen? So let's go back to the 1930s for a second, where the inklings of soul were sprinkled into the R&B and jazz records of the time. So that spiritual connection to all forms of church and worship is practically impossible to refuse in this musical expression. Then in the United States after World War II, gospel or spiritual music prospered commercially. So this is where we have Mahalia Jackson and Sister Rosetta Tharp were now names known far and wide along with R&B and gospel, rode the heavens towards commercial levels of recognition. The term itself, soul, made multiple appearances in Black culture in the 1960s, also becoming a mainstream standard. For retail outlets, on radio, soul was gaining traction to have as much pop and crossover appeal as Motown because of artists like Solomon Burke and James Brown. Speaking of widespread commercial appeal, cross-cultural influence was hard to ignore too, as Blue-Eyed Soul comes through strong and heavy. So Blue-Eyed Soul is basically white American and white British singing acts mainly following the musical template set by soul music and doing so successfully sometimes. What's up, Bobby Caldwell? <laughs> so crossover soul records were a hot commodity. Um, again, we also have Gladys Knight in the Pips, Every Beat of My Heart, and Lee Dorsey's Ya Ya. Practically all major labels wanted a piece of what soul could offer. Music historian Craig Seymour tweeted that a, quote, 1972 Harvard study encouraged major record companies to invest in soul music, and that became to the detriment of many independent Black labels, end quote. Scholar Brian Ward contends, quote, The demands of the Black audience for more explicit racial and social commentary in soul lyrics coincided with the industry's recognition that not only was this a necessity in order to maintain credibility and sales among Black consumers, whose collective annual income was in the millions by the early 1970s, but that such songs would not automatically alienate the white market. Interesting. So soul in the 1970s was quite the force. Just some of my personal favorites are The Impressions, Moving On Up, Held Melvin and the Blue Notes, Wake Up Everybody, The Isley Brothers' Harvest for the World, oh, I love that song so dearly, (laughs) and James Brown's Say It Loud. So self-love, Black pride, the daily grind, balance with a little bit of tenderness, were on the menu with work like this. Soul's overt global impact perhaps set a business standard we would later see
1: in the pockets of music and culture such as hip-hop. 70s soul is vast. I love everyone you mentioned, all those songs. I also love what Donnie and Curtis Mayfield were doing at the time. Gladys Knight and Aretha Franklin made some of their best music on soundtracks for Claudine and uh, Sparkle, respectively. All of Stevie Wonder's 70s era work is tremendous. I consider him a truly defining artist of this period.
0: I think for some generations, another a uh, family favorite of mine is Stevie Wonder's song in the key of life which I know is a probably mm. definitive soul record for a lot of people and it's only recently that I've listened to like the whole album like from track 1 to the last track entirely mm. and it's quite it's quite the experience so yes yeah, Stevie I want to I just wanted to mention that Stevie Wonder is a definitive standout for me as well
1: Oh, yes. And I got to mention, like, I love, love, love those 70s male vocal groups like the Spinners, the Delphonics, the Stylistics. And, you know, when we're speaking of the Spinners, the Delphonics and the Stylistics, we are speaking of this very particular, very significant location and sound, which we call Philly Soul. And Ashley, I don't think I know anyone (laughs) more capable than you to give us the facts on the sound of Philadelphia.
0: Well, I'm going to be real here to begin. That Philadelphia, in my experience, it's a little insecure when it comes to the arts. Eclipsed by the worldly impact of New York City and outshined by the flamboyance of Los Angeles, Philadelphia sits firmly with other cities in the US as a space rich with influence, but too often forgotten. This energy even extends to our sports scene as the 2018 Eagles rose to become Super Bowl champs, a night the entire city celebrated, and were even riding on the wave of being proudly labeled underdogs. So in retrospect, Philadelphia's musical roots are so illustrious that sometimes there's a lapse in memory that this is a city that has been a musical haven from Marian Anderson to the entire neo-soul movement. With Philly International as a huge landmark for 70s soul, it's an institution that touches even more contemporary musical artists. Even the notorious B.I.G. even lamented about getting pissy drunk listening to stylistic tunes. (laughs) Philadelphia International Records, a South Broad Street landmark in the city of the label's namesake, began in 1971 with Kenny Gamble, Leon Huff, and Tom Bell. They joined forces after gaining important insight into the business of music. Philadelphia International Records was backed by CBS Records, who at the time was hungry to acquire a place in the growing Black music pantheon. Philly International brought in seasoned talent, those who paid their dues and were looking for a boost in their musical profile. These artists were more mature and likely why the phrase grown folks music was born. The timing was perfect for this label to set a lasting standard. The post-civil rights era offered a window for more Black people to attend college, earn higher incomes than ever before, and have comfortable middle-class lifestyles, meaning more time and money for leisure, love, and investment in the Black family, political consciousness, and culture, regardless of the enduring impact of white supremacy and daily mustache-twirling trolling racism. (laughs) Some argue Philly International was the balanced soundtrack to all of that. This is a label that managed to set the standard for 70s R&B and soul. Some of their biggest artists and hits include The O.J.'s Backstabbers, The Undisputed Truth's Smiling Faces, Sometimes, Help Melvin and the Blue Notes, If You Don't Know Me By Now, Billy Paul's Me and Mrs. Jones, Teddy Pendergrass's Turn Off the Lights, My top replays of this period include The Jones Girls' Nights Over Egypt, The Jacksons' Show You the Way to Go, and Phyllis Hyman's Living All Alone, which came a little later in the 1980s. This was Philly soul, quote, smooth and plush, end quote, with your mom and pop's kind of string and horn instrumentation, and what music scholars have considered some of the first inklings of disco.
1: I absolutely love Philly soul. And you know... Philly's soul might have been known for its smooth and lush instrumentation as you stated, but there was another subgenre around this time known for kind of basically the opposite.
0: Which is best described as the fun cousin at the cookout, sashaying around the yard, drinking hand, wearing all the bright colors, came in stereo in the late 1960s and 1970s. And we all call them funk, sometimes first accredited to James Brown, known also as the godfather of funk or the new minister of heavy, heavy funk, depending on who you ask. But he may have been the blueprint. What happens with the subgenre just goes out of this world. So writers have described funk as swampy, lush, Latin-tinged rock. Like, funk is this gumbo of music cool. So this is where we have William Booty Collins, Sly Stone, the Bar case, George Clinton, LaBelle, Betty Davis, and obviously many more took the ideals of creative freedom to planetary levels, parallel universes, and even tapping into African mysticism and Egyptology as a reclamation, but also maybe a declaration of status as strange Black people in a world that already considers us strange. The word itself often saddled with negative connotations that neither Black nor white people were pretty fond of. Because funk was unkempt, untamed, or Mm -hmm. quote, ghetto, not a respectable way of being. Because of this, funk was kept out of the mainstream. According to writer Brian Ward, Quote, the word and the music reeked of earthiness, blood, sweat, and semen, and proudly proclaimed its connection to the essential forces of human, but more particularly Black existence, end quote. So, funk was one of the many examples of Black Americans negating denigration and cultivating a liberatory identity. Further, writers and scholars insist that funk is extreme talk, style, partying, and behavior in the records and performances. Basically, funk is the extreme of everything. It is, quote, deliberate confusion of uninhibited soulful behavior. It is a deliberate reaction to and rejection of the traditional Western world's predilection for formality, pretense, and self-repression. It is an ego trip, an escape from daily life and alt-culture within an already marginalized culture, end quote. Additionally, funk's antics were perhaps a Trojan horse for the lyrical content that challenged accepted norms of society. That was an, quote, apocalyptic, mythical approach to protest and its critique of economic and social issues such as urban blight, the nuclear threat, and governmental neglect, end quote. Scholars have noted that funk music was but a countercultural protest to the remaining social problems that persisted post-civil rights, but also optimistic. So funk was the sound of the young, Black, poor, and working-class community that sifted through the ashes of euphoria of the civil rights movement, but it was also that cousin who grabs your hand for a lesson on real music. Funk was special to me growing up because I grew up in a Jones generation household, so the post-Baby Boomers that you better not dare call Gen X, Generation Jones, technically a Baby Boomer subgroup were the teenagers of the 1970s, more likely to come from two-income households, witnesses to the fade of the post-World War II optimism, the economic turmoil that followed, and a surge in independence of their own destinies. So this group surely had the whole spirit of funk wild and free with this unwavering work ethic even when they decided to skip school. It was these teenagers like my mom that sought funk as one of their generation milestones. It was that thing that spoke to exactly what they were. The soundtrack at the basement dance parties was Earth, Wind, and Fire. It was Boosty Collins. It was Rick James. It was James Brown. Again, Brass Construction, Rufus and Shaka Khan, Tower of Power, and way too many more artists to name because this woman stayed at a concert during this period. I just... I mean, she spent all... This is the genesis of me. <laughs> music, funk, music in general, R&B, is what brought my parents together. This is kind of the period in where they were kind of like crossing
1: paths before they met. It's so fascinating. I mean, my mom is a regular baby boomer. She, she's the regular old baby boomers. But <laughs> funk was also her thing as well. So like, it's always been her favorite music. She's a huge funk fan. You know, just that, I, I, like I always say, that free spirit kind of music is how I look at funk. And so we, you know, she loved Parliament and Rick James and Earth, & and Fire and Shaka Khan, they were like always in heavy rotation.
0: It seems like these landmarks of R&B get more and more subversive in opposition of where society was at their respective moments, which is a momentum that absolutely does not slow down as we reach another certain peak in the 70s.
1: Oh yes, because disco was born in the 1970s out of the urban nightlife dance scene, developing out of the ever-evolving and shifting R&B sound of Motown and what? Philadelphia soul. It was born as a response to social unrest. Nightlife dance became a way to escape the rising economic and social issues of the time. Disco became a unifying movement and sanctuary for marginalized Black, Latino, and queer communities in major cities. This allowed folks in clubs and discotheques of all walks of life to come together to dance in safe spaces. By the mid-1970s, disco dominated the airwaves. It was everywhere. The music was often lush, funky orchestrations of four-on-the-floor beats, syncopated bass lines, string sections, horns, electric pianos, synthesizers, and electric rhythm guitars. Some of the most prominent disco artists were Donna Summer, who was considered the queen of disco, Casey and the Sunshine Band, Sister Sludge, Chic, Tavares, and Sylvester. And let's just say, Sylvester was an incredibly important artist during this time. He was known for his androgynous appearance and blazing falsetto. There was no one like him. He was a queer visionary and a pioneer who became a blueprint for many Black queer artists who came after. In 1977, the film Saturday Night Fever was released. It was seen as a rather successful attempt at marketing disco music to the white mainstream. The soundtrack, produced by the Bee Gees, remains one of the best-selling albums of all time, filled with inescapable disco anthems. The mainstreaming of disco led to oversaturation. Eventually, everyone and their mama was making a disco album, from Barry Manilow to Ethel Merman. Who'd want to hear an Ethel Merman disco <laughs> album? I do not know. Along with this oversaturation as well was racism and homophobia, leading to a major backlash that led to the disco demolition on July 12, 1979, where thousands of white rock fans stormed the field at Chicago's Comiskey Park, destroying disco records and various other records by Black artists. Some of my favorite songs during this period are Bad Girls by Donna Summer, Rock With You by Michael Jackson, Good Times by Chic, You Make Me Feel Mighty Real by Sylvester, Don't Leave Me This Way by Thelma Houston, And of course, best of my love by the emotions.
0: But wait, as much as I love all of that, I'm intrigued by what came after because like the term or concept of post-disco is something that I've never fathomed or heard. So I'm curious to hear it contextualized.
1: (laughs) Yes, as y'all have just heard, they tried to kill disco, but disco never died. Journalist Gary Hunter explains, quote, Bridging the gap in the years between disco and house, post-disco, seems like an appropriate term to describe the music being made in the early 80s. Not only does it capture the temporal aspect of the music that was made mainly in the first half of the decade, it also represents the desire to go beyond the constraints of disco. It may not sound like it now, but this was a hugely creative, innovative time in music. Proto House, Boogie, funk, and modern soul from New York to Tokyo. Post-disco is an all-encompassing term for music of the early 80s, end quote. Post-disco, often referred to as boogie, electro-funk, and synth-funk circa 1979 to about 1985. Some of the most popular recording artists during this era were D-Train, Patrice Russian, Kashif, Tina Marie, Evelyn Champagne King, and Cheryl Lynn. Pop stars like Michael Jackson, Prince, and Madonna also had early success during this post-disco era with songs like Want to Be Starting Something, I Want to Be Your Lover, and Holiday, respectively. I absolutely love the post-disco boogie era of the early 1980s. As a kid, this was the music I remember hearing most because my parents, who loved to have a good time, loved this music. Evelyn Champagne King's I'm In Love was played constantly in my home. My dad was obsessed with that song. And where, oh, where would any of us be without Lady T, a.k.a. Tina Marie? Yes. He is perhaps my favorite from this era. And I Need Your and is a big-time favorite. I can't remember a cookout, a gathering, or a family reunion where this music wasn't playing. And honestly, we're still playing post-disco at the functions now.
0: Wait, so why does post-disco get overlooked?
1: Girl, The mainstream does not care about Black folks having a good time. (laughs) Post-disco is an extension of the 70s disco sound. It wasn't discussed heavily because it is a part of 80s R&B. And you know they never, hardly ever want to talk about 80s R&B.
0: So, okay, so this is another puzzle I cannot solve. How does a whole decade just get lost in the Black music shuffle? To find substantial context, I feel like one has to do a bit of digging and sharp speculating.
1: Indeed. Despite the fact that 80s R&B was a fruitful and tremendously significant period for R&B, there is very little mainstream mention of its impact and importance. Outside of the Black superstars like Michael, Prince, Janet, Bobby Brown, and its subgenres like New Jack Swing and formats like The Quiet Storm, 80s R&B is often treated as if it never really happened. You know, I've racked my brain as to why so little is said about 80s R&B in the mainstream, particularly. I mean, yes, there are a few notable books, but not much. Thankfully, shows like Unsung on TV One try to fill the void. I noticed early on when I'm watching Unsung, it focuses a lot on 80s artists. Um, they seem to be massively underappreciated. I mean, the 80s was such a unique and dynamic period for R&B music. Lush, sultry jams by folks like Freddie Jackson and Stephanie Mills and Phyllis Hyman, with groups like Levert and DeBarge making classics at this time. I mean, the music of DeBarge has been a staple in hip-hop. You had bands during this era, too. You had Cameo and Midnight Star and Maze featuring Frankie Beverly. This is why BET's creation is so important. MTV wasn't really playing Black music videos during its inception. BT is where 80s R&B thrived, and thank God for that. Also, major producers emerged during this decade. You have Babyface and L.A. Reid to Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. These are producer teams who have made tremendous impact on popular music as we know it. Their producing careers started in this era. Also, some huge R&B artists who were already legends like Aretha Franklin, Gladys Knight, and Stevie Wonder redefined their careers in this period. I would love for 80s R&B to be given the same heightened visibility and appreciation for our and R&B that we give to the 60s, 70s, and 90s. Let me just say this. This era is a defining feature of my childhood, and I take it very <laughs> seriously. <laughs> and so when we talk about 80s R&B, we got to talk about what might have been the most significant and influential radio format that, it, that thrived in this era. I'm talking about The Quiet Storm.
0: So I just co-sign all of those wonderful sentiments about 80s R&B for sure. Feel the same way. We are of the same era and generation. And that also includes Quiet Storm. Quiet Storm for me is this special place on the radio airwaves, a program that comforted my never-wavering sensibilities. More than any FM experience, it is one encased vividly in my own recollections of moments past. I grew up with WDAS in Philadelphia. I knew when 7 p.m. arrived on weeknights because I'd hear Tony Brown's deep, smooth voice, and with certainty he played Vandross Creepin within the first hour. It was the cool down after a bustling city day. It was dusk after a rain shower. The pink skies accentuating the swift passing of row homes and corner stores as a passenger in my mother's car on the way home. The term itself, Quiet Storm, was first a post miracle Smokey Robinson having a go at another polished solo effort, a title track to his 1976 album that a man in DC would come to love and help transform into a brand that would become a mainstay on radio for decades to come. Melvin Lindy was a Howard University junior and station intern at the jazz-heavy WHUR in Washington, D.C., working under the tutelage of now-media icon Kathy Hughes. As a station director, she was always looking for an edge, a way to cast a wider net but corner a market. With a Sunday night spot open, Lindy received his chance to debut on air. He didn't know much about jazz, but he did know slow jams, especially ones like Robinson's track Quiet Storm. With Lindy's winning on air personality, his presence went from weekends to weeknights, and Hughes suggested using Smokey's track as the title of his new program. His vision? To shine a light of respect on crooners like Robinson, giving easy listening its flowers. Lindy was smooth, flamboyance wasn't his angle, and his program gave birth to a new standard radio format. Quiet Storm was the kind of grown folks' music that perked the ears of Black middle-class listeners. It was a market Hughes wanted very much to corner. Radio stations benefited greatly from having a Quiet Storm format, which attracted advertisers. So Quiet Storm was making waves all throughout D.C. and the wider region. So this is where WKYS Director of Black Programming, Donnie Simpson, who we, most of us know from Video Soul, BET, hired Lindy to repeat the magic, which firmly planted the format as a common standard. The Quiet Storm format, according to Khalifa Sanaa, sorry if I'm pronouncing your name wrong, is a mixture of R&B ballads and smooth jazz, mellow, beautiful Black music. It was a format in a unique space of not having to adhere to preferred radio song lengths or current releases. Quiet Storm was escapism into love and intimacy, devoid of any political commentary. But I could argue the Black communal attraction to one radio format for a few hours was healthy. An exploration of Black people to meditate on loving each other and family and romance and even ourselves. I feel like love, which is just another way we unite, that in and of itself is political. Especially in a world that would rather see us fractured. The format rose to prominence in the mid-1980s, as neither Baker, DeBarge, Luther, Sade, Frankie Beverly, and Mays became Quiet Storm staples. Many more artists followed, making sure they had at least one mid-tempo track or ballad that was radio-friendly for the format. So this is where we get tracks like Stevie Wonder's Love, Light, and Flight is commonly referenced. Along with producers like Babyface and L.A. Reed, Quiet Storm has been in stasis for the last 40 years, even at mid the many technological and programming shifts. For a certain generation, like Robin and myself, it was our parents' soundtrack that we happily embraced. It's possibly one of the reasons why the format has endured. Because there's always a need for a cool down. It's
1: balance. It is, as Lindsay says, quote, beautiful. You know, when thinking about the 80s and the way the sound of 80s R&B changed, specifically when you discuss the quiet storm, I often think of Luther Vandross. There was less of the, the grit of those churchy vocals from R&B singers, like in the 60s and 70s. And I, I think about it and I call it the Luther sound, which is far more polished. It's smoother. It almost feels more aligned with jazz than gospel and just far more stylized. And I add Anita Baker to this shifting vocal style as well.
0: Yes, I totally agree. There's something very different and distinct about Anita and Luther's, the way they sing in that style.
1: And what's so interesting about the 80s is you have the quiet storm as like this kind of symbol of Black middle class aspirations. But the sound that was capturing ears of Black youth during this time was something called New Jack Swing.
0: as many a Gen X would tell us, Yes, indeed. In the paper, The Village Voice, on September 1st, 1988, journalist Barry Michael Cooper used the art of prose to paint a portrait of New York's bustling Black music creatives in the mid to late 1980s. In the soup of endless lines of Apollo patrons and shiny biker shorts, gold door knockers, and the ever-persistent, quote, fad of rap music, loomed a sound that quite literally demanded the rhythmically blessed to bop along to and find the beat while crooning memorable choruses that evoked old-school melodies with new-school attitude. Multi-instrumentalist Teddy Riley was impressing crowds in the Harlem nightclubs when he was barely out of high school, creating original music with his prodigious keyboard skills. And with Riley's story and collaborator Gene Griffin, Cooper crowned this evolved form of R&B New Jack Swing. Riley's musical Genius incorporates bass lines, strings, multi-level percussion tracks, and computerized samples from James Brown and Stax Records all at once. It was like P-Funk, Kraftwerk, and the New York Philharmonic merging. Mm -hmm. To be more accurate, New Jack Swing is swinging drum beats, danceable bass lines, group backing vocals, classic funk, and soul samples. So New Jack Swing era hits include, Johnny Kemp's Just Got Paid, Johnny Gill's Rub You the Right Way, Ralph Tresvant's Sensitivity, Baby Faces, It's No Crime, Heavy D and the Boys' We Got Our Own Thing, New Editions, If It Isn't Love, Jodeci, Forever My Lady, Christopher Williams, I'm Dreaming, Janet Jackson's Control and Rhythm Nation 1814 albums, and Vogue's Hold On, Karen White's Secret Rendezvous, and Whitney Houston's I'm Your Baby Tonight. And those are just obviously just a few. And who could forget the Whitney appointed? (laughs) king of R&B, Bobby Brown, the former and current-at-once-new-edition member and blockbuster solo artist who actively sought out the sound of Black youth during this late 1980s period. Brown was hip-hop, but he could also sing his butt off, so Griffin produced Brown's single, My Prerogative, which along with his album, Don't Be Cruel, helped popularize New Jack swing. Throw in Michael Jackson's 1991 Dangerous album, a heavy Teddy Riley production, it is the all-time highest-grossing New Jack Swing record. So this trip to the times and landmarks of r and seems to bring us into discussing a decade that quite literally combines all in every piece of the genre established thus far, I feel. r and stank is everywhere, yet it's pretty underpublished and historically underdocumented as a genre of popular music. Mark Anthony Neal in Songs in the Key of Black Life, A Rhythm and Blues Nation, that's his book, suggests from his research that hip-hop eclipses R&B as a space for serious inquiry because it is inaccurately seen as a music much more politically charged. So basically, hip-hop offers a more so-called authentic representation and critique of the real conditions that thwart Black people from thriving and has marginalized rhythm and blues music's social and cultural significance. And that's such a sad, myopic way of kind of looking at R&B.
1: It is. And you know, what isn't popular with the white masses isn't deemed significant. It's clear after the 70s, R&B was no longer acknowledged as a serious genre by the mainstream. I've talked to older white music lovers, music lovers who can talk about Sam Cooke and Parliament and Marvin Gaye all day, but I mentioned Freddie Jackson or Stephanie Mills to them or, to, or SWV or Tevin Campbell, and they give me a blank look. So there's this disconnect, and it's infuriating. And it's not that I really care that they don't know Black music beyond the 70s. It's that their taste drives what gets published and what is considered important, what music makes what music books are written and what music documentaries are even made and that's what makes working on this podcast so important to me we have to keep the conversation going because it does matter to us and we hope giving you all this history on the evolution of r&b was as educational exciting and interesting for you as it was for us
0: oh boy absolutely that was quite the crash course As we kind of conclude here, I want to encourage everyone to please visit RhythmAndSchooledPodcast.com. We're going to have an archive of shows, notes, and references for your own independent schooling. And reach out to us. Our email is the411 at RhythmAndSchooledPodcast.com. If you have feedback and want to speak out
1: on your favorite R&B artists of the 90s. And to hear curated mixtapes for each episode, you can find them exclusively on Spotify.
0: We hope you enjoyed this. Until next time. Peace. Peace, everybody.